Action Park Media. All right. My guest today is probably one of the most impressive 20-somethings I've ever met. Chanel breaks down some of the myths about autism and ADHD. And today we are celebrating, actually, the release of her second book. So we get all the juicy details. Lots of things as well that you may not know that perhaps you are saying incorrectly or how we frame our discussion around autism. So I'm so grateful for her time. This is a really good one. You're going to love it. This is Pretty Depressed with Chanel. Okay, so I guess the first place to start is to kind of tell me a little bit about yourself and your diagnosis, because I know that you have autism and ADHD and you're kind of on the internet helping everyone <laughs> demystify what that is. So can you give us a little bit of background in your story up until this point? And I guess why you also chose to kind of share it with the world. It took me 30 years to be <laughs> like, here's my little dark secret. So I <laughs> you from, first of all. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I am 24 now. Um, I moved to New Zealand maybe when I was 10, nine, nine, I was nine. Um, and like, honestly, just things were quite hard. I think not knowing that I was autistic, um, or had the ADHD. I was actually assessed with ADHD when I was four and the psychiatrist or psychologist decided not to diagnose me. Um, and instead put me in a gifted kids program, which is quite common. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, there was that. And I started school maybe year six. So I would have been 11. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of hit my family quite hardly because uh, hardly hard. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, I would, I'd cry every damn day. Like we didn't know, we didn't understand what was going on. Um, and so it kind of caused a lot of tension in my family. There's a lot of fighting. We also didn't know that there are some family members who are autistic. So a lot of clashing, um, a lot of stubbornness going on there. <laughs> yeah. And so I kind of just slowly burned out, um, continued with school. My mental health declined. Um, I was first hospitalized for my mental health when I was 15, um, Things just got worse from there. And then there was a patch where I'd spent maybe four or five years trying to end my life at least once a month. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I don't know exactly what happened in the period of time right before I realized I was autistic. I don't know why I thought autism. Um, I think, like, I had had some conversation with some people in my family who thought that they were autistic. Um, and I think at some point my foster dad asked me if I thought I was autistic and I shut it down. But yeah, there was this week where I had a series of meltdowns and thought, oh, what if I'm autistic? And started looking into it. And then four months later, I had a diagnosis. Wow. And then from that, because I was in the mental health system um, and because they were so anti-autism, there was a very long process and fighting with them because they wanted to get rid of my diagnosis because they decided that it was detrimental to my well-being. Meanwhile, it saved my life. Like it stopped my suicide attempts completely. Mm. They spent a full year and a half trying to get rid of the diagnosis despite that. Um, and then um, because of that whole situation, I got really worried that it was going to end up in me losing that. 
And so I wanted to solidify it by getting a second assessment. And during that assessment, I asked to also be assessed for ADHD. And that's how I got my ADHD diagnosis. Okay, um, go ahead. Yeah, and so in between all of this mess, um, I started writing, I am autistic. And I was writing it for myself because there was so much to process. I mean, you go through 21 years of life and then realize, oh, like there's so much more to consider in the context of all of my memories. And I had a lot of trauma. So it was reprocessing all of that trauma in the context of being autistic. Um, so I was writing the book to help me put things in order and to process all of it. And um, <laughs> one of my colleagues, she wasn't my colleague at the time, she, she had screenshots of it with Verb Wellington and Verb Wellington sent that to three publishers. Two hours later, my publisher called me and I spent that first whole first phone call asking about self-publishing and how to do it. And she told me everything I'd need to know, um, which is why I signed with her because she, <laughs> because she was giving me unbiased information. Um, yeah, so that's how I Am Autistic came about. But one of your questions was about like being so open about it. Mm. I've always been quite an open person. Um, but also I kind of, I have this value of myself of like, I have been through so many hard things and I can get myself through it and I can put it away. And that's entirely valid if that's what someone wants to do. But for me, I'm like, if I've gone through 20 years of awful hard things and I just move past them, I feel like I'm not making use of something I could be making use of. If mm. I'm gonna go through so much hard stuff, I might as well use it to help other people. So I've always been very open. I've always been very honest and never really held things to myself. I think also I just wasn't really considering the implications a little bit. Um, it wasn't until maybe a year after the release of I'm Autistic that I realized I no longer have the luxury of choosing when I disclose. Everyone knows. <laughs> quick yeah. Google will tell us that. Yeah, that's true. That's interesting. Yeah. It's kind of giving a, that power away, I guess, even though you're wearing it as a badge. Um, so excuse my ignorance around autism. I'm not going to pretend no. like I know your journey or know your story, but what, what are some of these symptoms? Because I guess my very limited knowledge would be, and I understand it's a spectrum, yeah. but would be there would be a few alarm bells going off. How does your autism present and how is it so easy to like not really identify it for so long? Yeah, so I mean, there's kind of a few things that come into play there. So just to like make sure we're using the right terminology, we don't like to say symptoms for Sorry. autism. So traits is traits. great. A Thank simple you. fix. Um, Perfect. Yeah, so there's kind of a few things that go into play. One is that, um, the diagnostic criteria that we have for autism is based on eight-year-old boys. We do not have diagnostic criteria that is fit for girls at all, especially adult females or people assigned female at birth. So that's one of the challenges. The second is that people assigned female at birth or girls or women are more inclined to mask to socially fit in. And so they're more inclined to observe and take on the roles of other people around them to not be noticed. Um, the third is um, I was homeschooled in South Africa and there weren't any issues 
if that makes sense. I could do anything any way I wanted. It wasn't a problem. Mm. Um, and autism, it, it's not really something that's super well known, um, especially with like older generations. It's, it's still something we're learning about and it's quite new. Uh, honestly, I don't know how exactly I got missed for so long. I have some very stereotypical autistic traits. Um, I think though that we do still have a very outdated and stereotypical view of what autism should look like. So it's it's people screaming and hitting or sitting in a, a corner, like rocking, a hand flapping or whatever. But it looks different in every person. So it, it, for me, it's like the eye contact is hard. I don't understand different social expectations. I, I get very overstimulated. I do stim, I do flap my hands and spin and whatever. Um, but yeah, my traits aren't as obvious as you'd see in a child who's not speaking or, yeah. Um, and just out of curiosity, when you are having one of these traits come alive, mm -hmm. like maybe the hand flapping, are you aware that you're doing it? Or is it just an involuntary response? Or can you, yeah, out of curiosity, yeah, so I have a friend. I have a friend who um, has quite severe bipolar, and she talks about it as having like a white out. Something will trigger her, and she doesn't remember the next kind of ninety seconds of life. Right. Yeah. Um, so she's not. Yeah, she's she's almost yeah she's almost non uh, conscious during those really peaky kind of moments. So two things kind of there. I think. Um, so autism and the traits associated with autism, it, it, it's a neurodevelopmental condition, meaning it impacts literally every single part of who a person is. So the senses, the way the body moves, the way we regulate our internal uh, signals like temperature when we need the toilet, it impacts our memories of the way we process different things. Um, so I am autistic in every single moment of every single interaction in my life. Um, something like stimming, is something everyone does, everyone stems, autistic, autistic people just do it more um, and it helps us to regulate ourselves. It is usually a pretty conscious thing. I mean, sometimes I do it without realizing I'm doing it, but it, it's not like ticks where you have no control over it. Um, and I guess when it comes to say meltdowns or shutdowns, that is where you have less control over it and you may not necessarily be fully aware of what you're doing in that time or how, or the consequences of your actions in that time. But we're also humans. We also have the ability to learn how to regulate ourselves and learn how to respond to different situations. So while we still would have meltdowns, um, they're different and we can put tools in place to work on making sure that how that comes out isn't going to have severe consequences on us. And that's not possible for everyone, that it's extremely hard to get to that point. Mm. But um, yeah. Does that answer your question? It does actually, because I, I am, and I'm, I'm curious because I want to understand better. Um, you know, as a very well-spoken, very self-aware, wonderful human that I'm talking to, can you tell? Like I can with my depression, I can feel it coming. Mm -hmm. You know, so that is where, as a accountable adult, I have to try and put some systems in place. Um, is it, would you say that that would be a similar kind of thing? You can kind of like feel if things are going to escalate at some level. I think one of the other tricky things that comes into being interesting is that a lot of us struggle with what's called alexithymia and poor interoception. So alexithymia means that a lot of us 
don't have the ability to identify or describe our emotions or what we're feeling. Poor interoception means that we may not be aware of our internal signals. So like when we're hungry, when we need to sleep, when we need to drink. Meaning that we don't always understand or recognize the things that are happening. So we don't always pick up on our emotions or what those emotions mean. For me, I, I, can, I have kind of two, positive and suicidal. That's it. But they mean different things because there's so many different positive and negative emotions. But because um, of my upbringing and my situation, my autistic meltdowns turned into suicide attempts because it was the only release of that intensity that I didn't get into trouble for. Um, so when I got my autism diagnosis, I realized how dangerous that was um, because I'm autistic. Meltdowns aren't going to stop. They're, it's, an, it's an inevitable part of my life. Mm -hmm. And so from the day that I got diagnosed, I spent a lot of time and energy figuring, about, figuring out how I can change that and what I can do to make sure I'm going to be safe when I reach those extremes. Um, I have kind of learned now that when I start feeling that way, it is likely just a meltdown. I'm likely just overstimulated. And as soon as I notice it, I will go shove myself under my weighted blanket and just lie there for mm -hmm. a little while. Yeah. Um, what is it like for sort of friends and family? Like what is, uh, because I'm sure some people listening will either know someone in this situation or, you know, will come across someone in this situation. What behavior for you is helpful and what is hindering? Like, what are you met with that we can all take a token if we don't currently have a diagnosis for autism for ourselves? What is a behavior that I can either do to have more empathy for you? And what is like a don't say? For example, someone who's depressed, the worst thing that you can say is like, you should exercise or go for a run. You know, like it's, it's actually a really... Um, dangerous thing to say to someone who's unwell do you have a version of that for autism that we can all make sure we hold our tongue yeah <laughs> I mean these tensions yeah there's there's obviously quite a few um <laughs> a lot of people think that they're being uh sympathetic or helpful by saying things like oh but we're all a little bit on the spectrum or um you know like it, it feels a little bit dismissive or like oh but you're high functioning it's okay it's like, no, <laughs> like I'm autistic and it's okay to be autistic. Um, another one is um, you can't use your autism as an excuse when we've actually just explained why we're doing something. So in a social situation, I might explain that the reason I didn't pick up on a particular social rule or um, the way I was communicating is because I'm autistic. But then people think that, well, if you know about that social rule or like you know that people don't communicate literally and you choose not to change it then you're intentionally harming people but that's not fair because it requires the autistic person to constantly be aware of everything they're doing and saying and like switch it up to act neurotypical so that everyone else is more comfortable but no one else is willing to kind of meet in the middle mm. or just like realize oh Chanel communicates very literally. So I, I shouldn't try and find implications in what she's saying. Um, you know, people don't want to do that. And it's really frustrating. 
That is interesting because, yes, because you have so much self-awareness, I can see the jump that someone who's neurotypical might make to go, well, if you are aware of this said behavior, why do you continue doing it? But, yes, that's a very articulate way of doing it. Okay, so then ADHD comes into the mix a little bit later on. Now, is that, are they usually a married pair or is it like... (laughs) Just you just trying to be like Pokemon and collect them all? What are like is it Oh, I, I also have pathological command avoidance. I really am trying to collect them all. Um <laughs> no. So ADHD and autism very, very commonly seen together. Um you're more likely to have both than just one or the other. Um okay. it's quite interesting because they do clash in some ways. So for example, my hyperactive element of being having ADHD means I talk quite a lot and I talk quite fast and I can't shut myself up, but my autism gets overstimulated by that. So I'm overstimulating myself because I can't shut up or like I need a routine because I'm autistic, but my ADHD doesn't function in routine. So it's so yeah, trying to find that balance. The other thing I find really interesting about it is that I'm chuckling. I'm chuckling because I'm like, of course you've got both of them. Like how way to way to make a day fun. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Good. Autistic people also very often attract ADHDs, like they'll be best friends, they'll be partners. And it's so amusing to me because like they do work really well together, but they also clash in a lot of ways. Um, so I just find it quite fun watching it. Yeah, of course. And um, you can speak to this as little or as much as you want. Mm-hmm. Um, I always like to ask people how they medicate, and that doesn't necessarily mean medicate with, medicine, although it might mm-hmm. in your case, I'm not sure. And you can speak to that as much as you want, but also how you medicate in terms of life. Do you have, you know, is meditation part of a practice is, yeah. What do you kind mm-hmm. of do? Do you get drunk all the time? I don't know. How do you medicate good or bad? And and what, a, how does that help or hinder you? Yeah. So when I got my ADHD diagnosis, I was diagnosed by a psychologist. Um, and that made it very hard to get medication because Um, psychiatrists aren't super keen on simply going on the word of another professional. They want to do the assessment themselves. Uh, And I wasn't really keen on paying three grand to get medication for a diagnosis I already had. Um, Mm -hmm. But so it took me about a year to get medication Mm -hmm. and it has made a huge difference and our difference. And I'm so gutted that I didn't have it when I was younger. So what I discovered with the ADHD medication is that it significantly helped with my emotional regulation, um, which meant that suddenly I was no longer dealing with suicidal ideation. And that felt really strange, especially because ADHD medication is not something that psychiatrists will generally prescribe for a person who struggles with suicidal ideation. They'll want to try antidepressants first. Um, I'm glad I didn't have to go through that. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, I kind of wish or wonder if there has been more research um, because if that's more well understood, why, why can't ADHD people access the medication for that? It would make sense to me. It fits mm-hmm. in with having ADHD. Um, so yeah, medication has made a huge impact on my life. Um, I also just am struggling a lot with physical stuff. So I do have to take other medications and still navigating that navigating the fact that the conditions I likely have are very common with autism and ADHD. Um, 
in terms of other stuff, it's also been quite interesting navigating like the meditation and mindfulness side of things because a lot of mindfulness and meditation doesn't work for people with ADHD. It's too slow. It's too quiet. It's too stressful. No, thank you. Um, <laughs> so yeah. finding ways to kind of slow down my mind and calm down a little bit without actually stressing myself out is quite challenging. I've been really enjoying yeah, sorting, what Lego. Lego. sorting Lego. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Beautiful. <laughs> Do you um, disrupt it as well as an exercise and then put it back in an organized way? Uh, no. So I recently bought like a huge bulk pot of Lego um, and then I just started sorting it into its different piece types and slowly putting it into its sets. And then I can build the sets and it's, it's taking a long time. So I, I have no need to disrupt it. Okay. Got it. <laughs> That's fine. That's my perfectionism thing. I'm like, and how is it that you're sorting them? Okay, great. Perfect. <laughs> um, okay. So the book process, was this uh, helpful and exciting for you or did it come with its own layer of stress um yeah what is that like there's not many people in their 20s who have written not one but two books so first of all congratulations thank you um yeah the book the situation has been quite a shock to my system honestly like I spent so long not fitting in anywhere not feeling wanted anywhere and then I accidentally become an author who accidentally ends up best selling um and <laughs> so yeah I don't know it's been really cool in a lot of ways and really hard in a lot of ways as well. So the book came out. I wasn't expecting to sell very many. Um, and then clearly we sold a lot of them. Um, mm -hmm. And I started getting requested to go to speak at schools, to speak at teachers, speak to teachers. Um, mm -hmm. And I absolutely love public speaking. So yeah, go for it. I'm quite, I'm having a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, and it's, I think though the first public speaking event event I did post release of the book, um, it was quite hard um, because the school I spoke to was a group of intermediates, and I had been very careful about how I worded things because you know you've got to keep it appropriate for living mm -hmm. twelve year olds, um, and my story is really hard and really intense, and I don't want to be putting too much of that in that space, but I also didn't want to hold back too much. And so at the end of my talk, I had a group, maybe six or seven young neurodivergent kids who came and sat down on the floor with me and started talking. And they were talking about their experiences with suicide. And it was so hard to sit and listen to that. Not because not I didn't want to, but because I realized just how deep and intense the issues are we have around neurodivergence and how unaccommodating our society is. If we've got 11-year-olds who are already wanting to kill, kill themselves and already realizing um, mm. that they don't fit in. How are we failing so bad? Mm. Um, and so uh, it took me a while to kind of process that situation. And I will never forget those kids, honestly. It's, mm. yeah. So <laughs> I think while that was really hard and I struggled for a little while after that, um, I've definitely seen the importance of doing the work that I'm doing yeah and I'm going to be honest I forgot your question no no um, that's, I, I mean that was kind of it I guess I I, I appreciate you diving into some of the challenges because yeah you're kind of like here's my wound but then mm -hmm. by design you're now a role model in the space and people will trauma dump on you but 
with, again, best intentions, but you're someone who's now perceived to have come out the other side. So, uh, or, or in some, okay, well, sorry, not, not someone who's lived through something and is speaking openly about it for some, perhaps for the first time hearing this. So you're going to attract people who want probably you to speak into their lives. And if you don't feel well-equipped to do that or ready to do that, that can feel, I imagine, very stressful. I don't think I was struggling with it from the side of my own mental health. I think, okay. and I don't think I struggled with the kids at all. Honestly, they, they weren't asking for help. They were just being very, this is what happened to me kind of situation. Okay. And that was okay. Uh, I think it was harder for me to see just how deep the issues run and right. how hard it's going to be to fix that. And so it wasn't necessarily about my mental health or about the kids' mental health. It was about how, as a society, we're failing our neurodivergent community. Um, and there's only so much that I can do as one person. Uh, mm. At the same time, there's definitely been a lot of rewards from doing the book. I've gotten to meet lots of people. I've gotten to spend time with lots of neurodivergent people, and that's made me feel less alone. Um, and then being wanted in so many places... And going from spending five years trying to get a job to suddenly being offered jobs that I didn't even ask for. Um, it feels very surreal. And I think also strange because people are like, oh, you're an author. You must be super successful. And I'm like, it took me six weeks. It was really easy. What are you on about? Um, <laughs> All right, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Write another one. Go. We're here. Go. Boom, boom, three. Um, what would you say to... To parents, because, um, you know, if, if someone is listening or this finds itself in the hands of a parent, I, I imagine if you are in a situation like perhaps you were or a guardian and you want to help, but you don't have the resources, what would you say to parents that are in that situation right now? Yeah, so I do recognize how hard it will be for a lot of parents whose children get that diagnosis because they're often presented with a lot of very negative information mm. and the immediate default is generally to try and help the kid to be less autistic. Um, unfortunately, that ends up just kind of burning them out. Same with ADHD, to be fair. Um, and so a lot of parents go through kind of a grieving process um, and start worrying about how their kids might su su succeed in life if they're not taught how to behave correctly. Um, so one of the aims with my book was definitely to provide a more neutral or positive tone to it so that it's not all this awful information that you're hearing. Yeah. Um, and putting myself out there was to do that as well. Um, I, yeah, I've definitely spoken with a lot of adults on the side of advocating for the child. I've always made it, I don't care who you are, I will challenge you if you're hurting someone from my community, especially if they're a child. Um, so I, I've challenged a lot of people, they don't really like it. <laughs> um, um, and then I also recognize how it impacted my family. And initially when I got my diagnosis, I was just, I'd be annoyed at parents who are grieving it because it's so stupid to grieve it. but. Like, it's, it's not. It makes sense. And I saw how it impacted my family. I saw our relationships were destroyed. We, we basically had no contact when I got my diagnosis. Um, and my family was struggling a lot with, our, with their mental health. Um, my diagnosis gave me my family back. So 
it, it definitely has a huge difference. If you can take that diagnosis and take the information from it and use it to strengthen your relationships and your understanding of each other, that's going to help everyone involved. Like with my family now, um, I always found it quite hard visiting them because it was like, you're here now, you have to spend all of your time with us and you have to go to the shops every time we go to the shops. And it was so much, it was so intense. And now when I go there, they're like, oh, you're autistic. You need more time to yourself. So if you need to go be quiet, there's a room you can go there. We won't come in if you go in there. Or, oh, you like need time for transition. So we'll give you more warning if we're going out. Um, oh, you're very literal. So we're not going to take offense if you said something literal. Or, oh, you don't respond if you don't think a response is needed. You're not just ignoring us. Mm -hmm. um, so choosing not to take offense to things that they typically would have taken offense to um yeah and then me being more understanding of them as well of understanding a bit more about what their words actually mean um because I was interpreting very literally my whole life and I did get hurt by that quite a lot because no one realized <laughs> um so yeah just being more understanding of each other um has has made a huge difference to our relationships what are some of the beautiful delightful things that you love about your autism Oh, I mean, one is that I don't pick up on social rules. I, like, I can go to a meeting and I can leave when they start the small talk and I don't care. Um, uh, yeah, 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 that's great. Uh, and I also, I also like, one of the things I like, so I have pathological mind avoidance, which is uh, an autism profile. And well, one of the... One more time because I didn't quite catch it. And so I make sure I quote it correctly. Um, so I have pathological demand avoidance, which is an autism profile. And one of the things that comes with that is people with PDA um, kind of collect information on people and use it as a way to avoid demands. What that means for me is I collect very detailed information on people that allows me to communicate hard topics in a way that does not trigger defensiveness. So I have been very good at having some of these really difficult conversations with people who otherwise might struggle to hear it. Um, and very rarely do I have to deal with any fights with anyone. I know a lot of other neurodivergent people have, have gotten into a lot of arguments with people about things, but it's not something I've had to deal with too much so far. I think it's what has made my book successful because I've been able to word things in a way that gets taken well um and that's not that I'm not trying to be cocky I just that's just one of the things yeah that's beautiful roll with it own it that's perfect <laughs> that's interesting that like picking up on information is that a conscious thing or is it just that's how your brain works as you've got a little file going on I I don't feel like it's conscious um I do notice it sometimes like one of the things I um I notice is that I collect a particular piece of information on a person around what they like. So um, I learned that my psychologist um, loves the brain. And if you start talking about the brain, that's it. She's off on a tangent. So it's like in my brain, that's a protective mechanism. I could go, if I want to get out of this conversation, all I have to do is mention the brain. But other parts of that are like, oh, this person really likes fidget toys. And then I'll just start buying them heaps of fidget toys. Um, I'd like to use it in a way that's positive. I don't like to use it in a way that's manipulative. So, yeah, 
I mean, that's just me. Beautiful. Um, something I ask everyone uh, when I remember is what their brain looks like. And what I mean by that is like if it was a scene, mm-hmm. acting coach has my favorite one where he said his his brain is almost like a, a beautiful house except for some of the doors are locked and he doesn't want to go in there. Some rooms are really comfortable, some rooms mm-hmm. are a bit scary, and that's kind of how he describes visually his brain. Um, how would you, what, what does your brain look like? I feel like I have a very large filing cabinet that is very well organized, but at the same time, there are these little minions who are taking things out and throwing them all over the place. Um, and so there's a lot in my mind at any given time. But the filing cabinets are very useful because I have almost a photographic memory. And so I can go through my little files and go, oh, there's that thing. This is what it looks like. Put it back. Um, so yeah, it's a mess, but organized at the same time. I love it. Do you know what's so funny? And my audience who listens to all of this will be chuckling because I described my brain as like a woman staring at camera with glasses and frizzy hair and you've asked her to find something and she's surrounded by filing cabinets and she knows that everything is in there. She's just not sure where it is right this second. So our brains, although different, quite similar by the sounds of it. Um, Hey, what an absolute joy and pleasure chatting to you today. Thank you for being so articulate and so informed to help me gain a better understanding. I know that, um, yeah, my knowledge from this 30 minutes of just chatting to you will will change how I conduct myself in the real world. And I'm really, truly grateful for that. Um, Is there kind of anything that you wanted to end on or a note besides the fact that people need to go out and get not one, but both of your books and that we're all cheering for you to write a third in six weeks, because why not? Um, (laughs) But yeah, is there anything that you wanted to end on? Hmm. I think I'm very aware that I have a lot of teenagers following me. And one of the things that a lot of teenagers really struggle with is not fitting in. Um, And so it's kind of the time in their lives where they start resenting the fact that they're autistic and have ADHD. And all I really want to say to that is that I promise you what people think of you in high school does not matter. (laughs) Um, It's hard now, but it will get better. that's beautiful hey thank you so much it was a real pleasure chatting to you today thank you